it's just this weird merging of you have so for instance, a one character's hand or arm rather oh, gets oh 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 oh, 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 oh best part of the whole fucking movie. Love this. Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is episode number thirteen. I'm your host Anita Sarkeesian, and I am joined by my trustworthy crew of hooligans. Ebony Astor. Hey, monkeys. And Carolyn Pettit. <laughs> hey, y'all. <laughs> this is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love, or alternatively, we're the feminist killjoys coming for your media, depending on your perspective. On today's show, we're going to check in with the latest pop culture news, dive into the Cloverfield Paradox, the latest film in the loosely connected Cloverfield science fiction franchise. Then we're going to talk about how Formula One racing has announced removing grid girls from their tournaments and some of the backlash to that. We'll finish the show by each sharing a little something in What's Your Freakout? And as always, exclusively for our fantastic drip backers, we'll be recording a bonus segment. This week, we're going to bring back a classic, Hate Mail Hootenanny. Everything Feminist Frequency produces, including this very podcast, is listener, reader, and fan-supported. Thank you for helping us stay on the air and on the web. If you want access to special perks and exclusive backer rewards, join our podcast community at d.rip slash femfreak. Now on with the show. Hey! Hey, Anita! Hey, how, hey. Was your, how was your time here in San Francisco, Ebony? It was fantastic. The weather was so good. I had... Oh, it was so good. Um... <laughs> I will say that I was reminded, like, every time I come to the Bay Area, I'm like, God, I wish I lived here. It's so wonderful. We can trade. I love Oak. I don't want to live yeah, here anymore. You, I'll go to L.A. Yeah, except you know that I don't live in L.A. proper. I'm not going to tell you where I live because no, I know there's that. a bunch of freaking weirdos <laughs> out there. But you don't want to live where I live, as as wonderful as my suburban house is. Whatevs. But no, I come to San Francisco. I love it. I have some good food. And then inevitably, I wind up you know, on some random afternoon of walking up some like 40 grade hill in San Francisco. And I'm like, this is why everybody here is so skinny. This is not in my ministry. I can't do this. That town is laid out funky. We got a lot of hills here, but it also means that we have beautiful summits. So you get to the top of the hill and it's like a breath. I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know. (laughs) I just gave up. (laughs) I was like, whatever's at the top, I don't need to see it. All right, Carol, what is the entertainment news this week? All right. Well, first of all, uh, big news is that uh, Benny and Weiss, the showrunners of Game of Thrones, uh, have uh, it has been announced that they are going to be uh, behind an upcoming series of Star Wars films. All right. Um, so this is that uh, they. Awful. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so they released a joint statement saying we are honored by the opportunity, a little terrified by the responsibility, and so excited to get started as soon as the final season of Game of Thrones is complete. So, real quick, like you know, this is interesting for. A few reasons. One being that they there was all this talk about the show Confederate, which they were supposed to be showrunners of, like this alternate universe America where slavery is still a thing, which sounded tremendously awful. Now, there's no mention of that whatsoever. So the status of Confederate is kind of in question now because of this announcement. But also, like, more importantly to me is, like, these are two people who I... I'm not at all interested in seeing what they want, what they would do with Star Wars. You know, there's been a few tweets like, yeah, maybe we'll finally get like a mature R-rated Star Wars. And I'm like, that's not what fucking Star, we don't fucking need an R-rated Star Wars. When Carolyn swears, you know You know I'm serious. actually, you yeah. know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we don't need like a rapey or like super violent uh, uh, Star Wars. That's just not what that franchise should be in my opinion. So... So there's that. Yep. Um, in other news, um, Jessica Jones is returning. And what I thought was really interesting, so I got an email from Netflix about the return of Jessica Jones. And the email actually touted, like, Jessica Jones returns on March 8th, International Women's Day. So they're, like, oh, actually boy. tying <laughs> the release in. And I, like, I mean, I'm like, eh, come on. Like, it's, I mean, I'm. I'm looking forward to the series. I'm going to binge watch it. You better believe it, I am. But, like, come on. I mean, and, and yes, representation matters. And, like, all this, we're going to have tons of conversations about what this show means and everything. But I, I don't know. When you tie 
it in like that explicitly to International Women's Day. It just seems a little silly to me. It's a little. I like how you said that you got an email from Netflix because well, at first I thought you meant like the leadership of Netflix, like the <laughs> right, right, right. programming was like, "Hey, Carol, just wanted to make sure you saw this," yeah. which I know you have that well, kind I of mean, pull in this town, yeah. so that might have been what happened. Well, you know, I got some connections. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on to. Did you have another thing to no, add? No, no, no. Oh. I'm, I'm done. I am, I am swiped I'm like, out. I have I nothing more to say right. about any entertainment oh, before news. We, before we go then, if we still have time, I just want to say, because you know this drives me nuts, people stop putting together rapey fanfic about Kill right. Grave and Jessica Jones. We will Jones. absolutely okay, talk about Jessica Jones and all of that, because I'm with you on that. And I feel like we need a whole segment dedicated to that particular mm-hmm. horrific. I just wanted to drop that turd in the punch bowl. Yep. Okay, moving on. Perfect. <laughs> all right, moving on to the main segment. Yeah. The first topic we're going to talk about today is Cloverfield Paradox. This is the new science fiction show, or the new show in the sci-fi Cloverfield series The new film. Franchise. Uh, yes. Did I say show? You said show. I meant film. Yeah. It's cool. I know things. (laughs) It's all right. Um, So Cloverfield came out in 2008, and then 10 Cloverfield Lane was in 2016. During the Super Bowl this year, there was this surprise announcement that Netflix was releasing the new new show, Cloverfield Paradox. (laughs) The new film. Yeah, whatever, man. Uh, That's exactly (laughs) how I feel about it. Um, This one is directed by Julius Ona... Onahan, Onahan, and produced by J.J. Abrams and is about a crew stuck in space for years doing experiments to create alternative lasting energy. So we actually all watched this together in the office last week, which we have a strict rule of like not watching things together so that we stay fresh for the podcast. Wait, we do? Yeah. So we stay fresh I didn't know for the we podcast. had that rule. Well, it was more like we don't talk about it, but it was so hard not to talk about this throughout the whole viewing of the movie. I thank God that y'all were there because you know, Anita, what couple of scenes just made me want to crawl out of my skin. And so if you and Carolyn had not been there, I straight up would have turned off the movie and not and closed my laptop and then just walked to Oklahoma. I would not have been able to finish it. (laughs) Let's let's throw up a spoiler alert so that we can talk about spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Jigsaw is the fake dead guy on the floor. The worm. Ebony's phobias. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. I can't. Even though. We won't actually word. talk about it, but that's what. That really that's, grossed yeah. out a lot of people. So, yeah. Fast fact about Ebony. My A. It, why am I telling you this? I'm probably going to get a package full of worms in the mail. I was actually like, we my shouldn't number say one that. Fear. What if horrible people on the internet just start sending you images of worms? I'm sorry. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Well, whatever. I asked for it. I hate worms. <laughs> I don't care what they do for the planet. As far as I'm concerned, they're tools of the devil. And when I, s- there was no need for them shits and Cloverfield Paradox. Like, like there was, oh, man. Oh, God. Oh. So, uh, I guess to say, to start off by trying to say something, I don't want to <laughs> go so far as say redeeming, but I do want to <laughs> say, like, Something positive about this film is that. How do you know we don't have anything positive no, I'm to not, say about the film? Oh, I'm not. Yeah. I do. <laughs> because she I'm knows not us. That. I just she she knows us. I just because I because obviously like I totally think this is a a, a stupendously bad movie. So I do stupendously yeah, bad. Stupendously yeah. bad. But. Uh, so the basically like I mean it's an international space station so it kind of has an ensemble cast but really if we're gonna pick like a star I think it would be uh, Gugu and Batha-Ra. and I mean she deserves better material than this of course and yet uh, uh, she's so good like she just can't, in my opinion she just is always so good in whatever she's in and so even in this kind of like schlocky material. I just loved her performance in this film. Like, there's a moment where she's um, communicating with uh, her exposition boyfriend back on Earth, like the the person whose role is just to like explain the whole the whole scenario to the audience, and they uh, they share a kind of moment of of pain and poignancy and connection around their uh their children who have uh perished and she, and just this look that crosses her face it's like filled with like genuine human pathos and emotion even in this like absurd utterly absurd movie and I'm, and so I, I i was like i was so moved even in even in a movie like this so you know i i, I hope that that she has a uh, a career full of like 
much better films than this because she is she is I think really exceptional. Um, yeah, I just I wanted think, to get that know, out of the way. No, you're absolutely right. You know, it's kind of a cliche to say, you know, uh, an actor elevates the material that they're in, but that's absolutely what she does in this piece. Um, you know, coming from the position of being like a hardcore science fiction nerd uh, in which like any glimpse of like a brushed steel corridor or you know some slightly industrial space just scratches the itch I have for some generic version of the future um you know I I enjoyed sitting through this movie with y'all except for the the worms part you Uh know which might as well have come straight from a horror film um so you know it's 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 standard by the numbers you know cliche ridden generic science fiction that doesn't try to do anything interesting thank god because clearly it's not smart enough to to try anything interesting. <laughs> and yet, nevertheless, there are occasional performances. So, like, you know, uh, Guga is amazing, right? Um, the the actor, I think her name is Elizabeth Debnicki. I'm probably getting that wrong. But the woman who plays, um, oh, shit. The, the woman who, like, merges with the ship. You know, like she's oh, Jensen. a, a Jensen. captivating Jensen. figure yeah. to watch. Like, she portrayed um, and inhabited that, that kind of, like alienation and just this vague sense that there's something unsettling going on incredibly well. Yeah. I mean, I guess for for me, when I think about this film, the question of whether it's a it's a good or bad movie is sort of beside the point. The question is because it kind I feel like it's a movie that knows it's a bad movie and embraces that it's a bad movie. So then the question becomes, is it a good bad movie or is it a bad, bad movie? I don't know if it knows that it's bad. I I don't know. I mean it's just I don't think the creators are like, we made a bad movie. Well, I think that they no. genuinely think they made a decent sci-fi film. Okay. I mean, I don't yeah. Maybe I, I, I feel similarly to what Ebony said, where like I'm I'm just dying for some real sci-fi and I sure. realize that like I've been I'll talk about the expanse on another episode but like I like I keep watching this stuff that I find disappointing or cliched or just not giving me very much because at least it's it's at least it's giving it's it's scratching a little bit of the itch of like wanting a really good sci-fi franchise or film to come out um and so my feelings about this were very much that it like it hit all the tropes. It was really predictable. I mean, we called most of the stuff that was coming, that was going to come out. Um, there was a lot of exposition. You know, like it. It. I don't think it's complete and utter trash, but I also don't think it was very good. Yeah, I mean, I guess when I say that it's a bad movie that knows it's bad, I mean, yeah, maybe that's unfair. But still, when I think of, uh, it's just this weird merging of you have. So, for instance, uh, one character's hand or arm rather oh, gets oh oh oh, oh 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 best part of yeah. the whole fucking so the whole, movie so the character's arm gets like eaten basically by the wall of the ship and then later like some kind of Adam's family uh, oh, thing is, yes. the arm literally the arm comes back and literally is like Wants to write a message okay. to the uh, to Yo, the, people. the movie is worth watching for that part alone. <laughs> and, like, like, and there's okay. never any explanation given no. for like how this could be possible, even within the Are logic you, of. Do the... you remember the line that was the most amazing line in the whole movie? Hit it me. was. Yeah, I don't. What are you talking about, Arm? Oh. <laughs> and oh said in Chris O'Dowd's wonderful Irish accent, right? <laughs> Just what are you talking about, Arm? Uh, oh yeah, that's right. It does. It did sound. It sounds great. It sounds great. It was seriously my. I the arm thing was delightful. I did not see that coming. Well, no, but I, I mean, how so can good. you? I mean, it's so. It's just like it's like they may as well have just rolled random plot device dice and just been like, oh, okay, well. It, you know, it, it it felt like you know how in in Cabin in the Woods, like just so much crazy shit starts happening because it's just it's literally like they have all these random generators for what kind of end of the world uh, 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 demons or whatever. It's felt like something like that. Like just just close your eyes and and point at a at a board and whatever you land on, like that's what happens. Yeah, when, yeah, and it makes no narrative sense either because. Because once it's used to kind of advance the plot a bit, it's completely left fallow, right? So, you know, um, Mundy, <laughs> the guy who loses his arm, Mundy. apparently, you know, after the first few people kind of, you know, for lack of a better, you know, phrase, get attacked by the ship, that stops happening. And I mean, after 
a ship eats a man's arm and then that arm reappears <laughs> and you know it's like hand me a sharpie I got shit to tell you yeah. you expect that to happen more right yeah. but then it stops happening like did was the ship like okay I've had enough or the alternate dimension it's like there's no explanation or interesting non-explanation for why that doesn't happen they even stop talking about it like how could you not be jumping out of your skin at any moment right. after your colleague had his arm taken off how would you like I'd be yeah. frozen in place thinking the ship was going to eat me. Yeah, the psychological, you know, there was no sense of psychological reality in terms of how the characters reacted to the situation they were in. But, I mean, that's kind of out of necessity. Like, the plot has to keep moving forward if they were all just, like completely catatonic with fear at the, yeah. at the utter... Yeah, but I also feel like um, there was a moment where the um, the captain who... Um, Keel. Keel, Commander yeah. Keel. He... I felt like there was a really nice scene where he is so horrified about what's going on. Like, and it was at the mm-hmm. beginning... Actually, it was, it was when they realized that they were in a different... They didn't know right. what was going on and Earth had disappeared. And um, he's in his room and he's crying and he's really mm-hmm. upset and mm-hmm. he's just like... I thought that was actually really nice. Yeah. And then you see him walk into yeah. the next scene and be like, okay, I'm the commander. I have to take command. Mm-hmm. But like he took that time to feel the horror right. and try to demonstrate that. The problem is that like it was such a small at like tacked on bit of emotion that like I think there was a lot of like little tacked on bits of emotion that didn't create a hole in terms of what was actually mm-hmm. happening here. Yeah. But mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> in terms of representation, I wanted to talk about Tam. Oh, right. So Tam mm-hmm. is, um, she is like the Asian representation on the crew that's trying to be, you know, representative of different parts of the world, I guess. Um, you know. They, there's the German guy, there's the, the Russian German guy. There's the German and the Russian guy. There's all the different white dudes. Yeah. Um, but no, so there was there was various representation, but it was really unsettling to me that like, so clearly everyone on the crew understands uh, Mandarin and some of them speak Mandarin. And she exclusively speaks Mandarin while everyone else almost exclusively speaks English. And it just felt like she's Asian. Let's remind you that she's Asian and she's the Asian representation and she's from China. And then she was excited about dumplings. Like it just felt like so many like aspects of that could have been much more subtle and like almost like they wanted a cookie for that kind of representation. Well, Mm -hmm. no, not even that. Just I felt like they did a very poor job of integrating her yeah. into the rest of the crew and keeping her othered. That's right. I was going to just just you that's exactly what I was just going to say that, that that it continues to other her in that in that space. Um, yeah, one of the reasons why I love films like this. I, okay, I I wrote a list of all of the kind of generic conventions that this movie offers us oh, that yes, I please. unironically love. And one of the things I love, Anita kept looking at my notes. This is why we can't <laughs> watch it together because I know she's cheating off my paper. Yep. But one of the things I unironically love is a good old international space station or international <laughs> space crew adventure. And one of the reasons why I love it is this kind of like jigsaw puzzle of identity they try and use as a shorthand for you know um the cold war is over you know ethnic conflicts have passed it's the future we all get along right but in this very ham-handed way um and so one of the things that i loved about this movie and okay no shade to the irish i know it sounds like it but no shade to the irish but you have like someone from the u.s from the uk you have someone um i think acosta was from brazil you have someone from china and then you have someone from ireland and i was like that's a random choice right like again no shade to the irish monday was awesome I think that's a little bit of shade. i was just like i think they just wanted an accent but <laughs> exactly. still like a white dude yeah you know and chris o'dowd is great but it was just i was like oh yeah the irish right on Okay. You know. Yeah. Um uh one of the notes that the the only thing I remember from your notes that I was peeping on was how you said that um Jensen was basically you phrased it better but that b- basically Tilda Swinton in space. Oh. Yeah, she was like <laughs> if Tilda that. Swinton, if Tilda Swinton and Gwendolyn Christie collaborated on a space robot baby. <laughs> wow. They would come up with Jensen. That's exactly right. Right? Yep. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, as all this stuff is happening on the space station, we occasionally return to the surface of Earth, um, and, but we're kind of kept in kept in the dark about a lot of what's happening on Earth. But uh, one line fr- that happens in that space that I love is so when um, when uh, 
the exposition boyfriend is is <laughs> driving and he's listening to the radio like to news reports on the radio and they talk about something uh uh disastrous happening in the residential suburb yeah um, i love that they're like it's generic like, yeah, area it's exactly like there's you know in in major american city you know <laughs> this thing is happening you know i yeah i i feel like the b story was really weak in this that yeah. like you know I mean, yeah yeah go ahead. It, it, it's purely i think the whole point of it it seems to me is to set up the the, the the sort of plot twist if you can even call it that in the that happens in the final like 10 seconds of the film like that's almost mm-hmm. the whole the the thing and which well, I, which I ties guess... it to other cloverfield films Right, and apparently that was an add-on, right? So J.J. Oh. Abrams, you know, initially, you know, um, had conceived of this thing, this movie. It was originally called The God Particle. It was not related to the Cloverfield franchise at all. Huh. And then it was kind of retrofit oh, um, that for that. Sense. So we get, a, you know, a clover at the end, as they're called. This gigantic, huge fucking clover that's exponentially bigger than the big one we saw in Cloverfield, the original movie, right? So in terms of like, you know, what the fuck is happening, Etude, this movie amps it up quite a bit and refuses to answer any questions. Um, but so, you know, I think part of the the kind of like, you know, jury rigging this thing into the Cloverfield franchise happened because it wasn't originally meant mm. to be a Cloverfield movie at all. And I know, Anita, you just recently watched t- in Cloverfield Lane. Yeah. But haven't seen the original, right? Correct. But you know, th- it's not as if seeing Ten Cloverfield Lane or the original Cloverfield would have aided you in watching this movie. It, it, they are completely separate properties. I do. So I didn't know. I didn't watch Cloverfield, and I only watched Ten Cloverfield Lane because we were talking about this. And I, you know, why not? Um, I really love the concept of like this mm-hmm. sort of loosely connected. Like it's not. I I called it a franchise, but like it's just loosely connected concept. Like mm-hmm. films with different perspectives and people, but there's that one little bit that connects them all. And I really love the idea of it. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, I, I I I'd be. I'm curious how we can how other creators can use that. I mean, you obviously have to have a big enough platform to be able to justify like films across. You know. A decade, for example, mm-hmm. but it, it's kind of cool to see yeah. how you do these threads. And because I especially like, I gravitate to films uh, or to media where there is very strong character and relationship development. I, I I prioritize that over plot in a lot of ways for the way that I I approach my criticisms. Um, Could I cut in here yeah. and just suggest people go back to last week's episode about Call Me by Your Name and say Anita. <laughs> Do we truly believe that to be the case? Okay. Fair. Please continue. No, that's fair. Um, so not always. And you're right. I just think so. Like mm-hmm. the example I always go back to when I talk about this is Rogue One. Like I feel like Rogue One had a really good plot and really terrible character relationships. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so yeah, I, I'm probably not totally consistent, but that is sure. generally what I look for. But you're right. Yeah. It, it, I also am not a hopeless romantic, so I think that that had to do with that. <laughs> well, but, oh. no, and I don't mean that in a mean way, but you know that story didn't matter as much to me. But uh, I was saying something. Uh, oh, so that's why I find this this concept fascinating because it really is about creating these like different pockets of people and their experiences related to this larger horrible right. systemic thing that's happening and, in the world. And right. you know, just uh, that reminds me of so one of my favorite novelists is uh, David Mitchell, who wrote the novel uh, that the film. He's probably best known to the public for writing the novel Cloud Atlas, which the film Cloud Atlas obviously is based on. But he has a whole, um, you know. A, a bunch of novels and um interestingly they are all kind of connected in often like really subtle ways like it's not like they're a, a series where you have to read them in a kind of linear way but a character who's like uh you know a 12 year old kid in one might be like a 45 year old you know person in another or whatever and it that connection between the novels the way that they kind of come together to form this universe isn't just like it's a fun gimmick it totally is but it's more than that because it works to to make you feel like these characters lives yes kind of as you say are grounded in it gives you more a sense of like perspective and a a way that these characters lives are grounded in in the systems and the cultures and the time periods in which they live and how one time period really does like 
just, you know, and the actions of people in one time period really do can, you know, directly influence another. So, yeah. so I'm a big fan of that as a, as a concept. I think obviously it can be done more or less successfully, but I sure. share your kind of excitement around, around that. Yeah. So the last thing I want to bring up about, uh, just quickly about Cloverfield Paradox is that, um, so I, one, I have a question of, um, uh, I'm curious from our listeners if you can recommend, not recommend, but uh, is there a pattern with women going into space because they lose their children? Hmm. Um, this happened in Gravity and it happened in this. And I would be curious to explore this, that sort of pattern yeah. if it exists in other and ones. So hit me up at Anita Sarkeesian on Twitter in and let a- me know. In, I think in Aliens, they mentioned that mm-hmm. Ripley's daughter has died while she was in... Was right. that correct, Ebony? So, I mean, it's not like... And so I was wondering, are you looking for people, uh, for instances in which women have gone into space because their children yeah. have died or after? Or are, are you Let's say after, to... and then I will determine okay. whether uh, what the, the pattern is there kind of thing. But I'm mm-hmm. curious. So one of the things about this that I... So I had a hard time with, but I think unfairly, like this is might just be my own shit. Uh, there is a in life when couples lose a child, very often they don't stay together or very often it's very tense or they have a, a hard time overcoming that because it is literally the worst thing that could ever happen to you in life for the most part. Um and that isn't always the case, but we don't often see representations of couples who are still very loving and caring and together after something like that happens. And so I I don't I don't have a fully fleshed out thought around this, but it was an interesting choice to make in terms of how they built the relationship between Ava Hamilton and her exposition boyfriend in terms of like they set they set it up so that she went to like he's like you need to go to space to deal with this thing to save the world but also because of this trauma of losing our child or our children did we ever find out how long it had been since their children had died in the fire we ever I, I don't think they made that? I don't think they made that clear no because I, I don't know if y'all had the same reaction but um so Ava and I think his name is Michael Exposition mm-hmm. boyfriend. Let's let's call him Eric. Eric Exposition. They're having a conversation, <laughs> you know, over the giant space TV screen, and it cuts out before Eric Exposition can say, "I wanted to ask you a very important question" or something to that effect, right? Um, and then it transpires later that what he was going to say was, "Maybe it's time." for us to try again, right. like have more kids. And of course, we're not going to. But I was like, okay. That's gonna go over like a lead fucking balloon, Eric. I don't. I'm thinking. I'm pretty glad that you got cut off there because I don't think that's gonna be, you know, uh, something that you really want to broach in this instance. Yeah. Like, and while you've been apart for two years. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So cool. Okay. All right. Um, Cloverfield Paradoxes on Netflix. Mm -hmm. If you want to check Mm -hmm. it out, and that was our opinions on it. Uh, the next topic we want to talk about today, uh, well, so t- we, uh, we want to talk about a topic today as opposed to another piece of media. Um, so Formula One Racing announced on January 31st that they will be ending the longstanding practice of using walk-on grid girls at the beginning of their 2018 World Championship Series. Now, a grid girl is basically... The equivalent of like a convention booth, babe. Um, they model they're they're models. They hold signs. They like line the corridors when the victors walk out. Um, they celebrate the player, that kind of thing. And in Formula One statement, um, part of what they said was, while the practice of employing grid girls has been a staple of Formula One Grand Prix for decades, we feel this custom does not resonate with our brand values and clearly is at odds with modern day societal norms. We don't believe the practice is appropriate or relevant to Formula. One and its fans, old and new, across the world. Now, we uh, we tweeted this out because I'm a smart ass and I wanted to be like, hey, video games, take a fucking cue because you don't need to put grid girls in your goddamn video game, ra- your racing games anymore. But what was so interesting, so we got a shit ton of backlash from that tweet. And also, there was a backlash to Formula One in general mm-hmm. from fans, from racers from folks and i wanted to unpack some of that difficulty yeah or some of the so some of the backlash and the 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 theory and thoughts behind it right right 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think. Uh, it, <laughs> Why don't you take us through your favorite reaction? Yeah, so my favorite reaction, <laughs> we got uh, a number of very thoughtful uh, replies on Twitter, but perhaps the most uh, thoughtful and thought provoking, a tweeter, uh, a tweeter by the name of Kim Jong Kuk uh, replied <laughs> simply, uh, "Quote." Nice, less jobs for women, end quote. Um, which is very, you know, but actually like the, the over... Because you really care. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Kim Jong-Kuk deeply cares about, about women. Don't you care about the wage gap, Anita? Oh my so, God. But in fact, like most of the, I think the replies that were, that are in some way critical of this, that's what they land on is, is how, is how can feminism be, you know, quote unquote, against uh, women you know, choosing to do this this kind this job. Yeah, totally. There was a a YouTube video that got passed around quite a bit from Rebecca Jackson, who is a, a race car racer driver, <laughs> race, car race car driver. Sure. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know. If she's in. I believe Formula the technical term is speed racer. Kind of thing, but um, I found it's like a three to four minute video, and that got sent to us a lot on Twitter. Um, and I found it really incredibly frustrating mm-hmm. but also just she she articulates very well all like the opposite of all the things that are wrong with this right so she's really using she's using and also attacking feminism in this in this complicated way that we see a lot when we bring up these topics so she's talking about how choice is being taken away from women right. um she goes into how it's a glamorous job with glamorous people so why wouldn't you have glamorous women and that whether they're male or female we should open it up to grid men and all grid people as well um and and she she literally i we i wish we had a bingo card for this cuz she hit all the goddamn bingo points um if women didn't want to be objectified, then they wouldn't do it. It's just the way the world works. Um, and in the future, you could choose to be and, – and in the future, because of feminism, we should create a space where you can choose to be a racer or a grid girl. Equally op- – like equal opportunities for sh- these fucking positions. And this brings up the point in that this is what is used against us yes. when we talk about that there are certain – um, that when we talk about these kinds of things, and this is really called choice feminism, exactly right, which is co-opting the language of feminism, and it's taking an individualistic belief that any choice a woman makes is a feminist choice, regardless of how it affects women on, as a whole or as a society or systemically, and it's bullshit. Yeah, I mean, it seems to <laughs> you know, as long as we, as long as women are valued to such a degree for their physical appearance that a, that a position like grid girls um even kind of makes sense to people as a thing that women can and should be doing um while of course everyone i mean despite what people say you know everyone i think fundamentally understands well grid guys is just not a thing that's going to happen because <laughs> we don't think of men you know, in those terms, and there isn't a desire or you know an appetite for that at all on any level. You know, the fact that we as a culture think about women in these terms actually fundamentally limits women's freedom and women's women's choices in our in our culture. Right. Because, well, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And like I just like unpacking this shit, man. Right. You have she is taking the status quo as the baseline norm. Exactly. And she's saying that, like, what we have now is the best that we're going to get. And so how do we create like, how do we just accept the status quo and how dare you change anything? And that's what, like, Ivanka Trump is not a fucking feminist. She's choosing to do whatever the fuck she wants to do, right? And, like, that, but that, if you believe in choice feminism, right. you believe that literally anything any woman chooses to do is feminist, whether they're literally in charge of, you know, fighting against abortion rights, whether they're in charge of, of, um, perpetuating international wars that dis- that harm people around the world, you know, like all of this crap. And it really, it makes me mad because it's like, this isn't about like, you could even unpack the notion of like what beautiful people are, right. like what that means. It's so fucking yes, limited. Exactly. And so there, there's so many layers to this that I don't, it's so yeah. incredibly frustrating. And that, you know, it's, it's the same thing where I think we need to look at all of this stuff systemically because people will be like, well, if uh, women didn't want to be sexualized in films, then they just wouldn't take those jobs, right? And so you think about all of the like naked women in Game of Thrones. These are women who, uh, 
who have auditioned for 500,000 roles and been not, been turned down for all of them and are just trying to make a break in Hollywood, right, as the career that they want. And so they're kind of through this system, quote unquote, forced to take on those roles if they want to do this career. That is a problem with the system. Exactly. It's not a problem with the women who are taking those jobs. Exactly. Exactly. It, yeah. One of the things that I found interesting is... Uh, I will admit that when I first uh, read about this story breaking, I didn't read it carefully. And so I assumed, and this reveals, you know, like my, my bias against, you know, certain things. I assumed they were talking about NASCAR, right? Mm. And so I thought, wow, what a bold choice for NASCAR, which is, you know, um, a sport that is, you know, kind of ha- has a heavily North American fan base, but also, you know, is explicitly coded as a working class, um, a white working class um, uh, sporting activity, right? So I was like, wow, what a bold choice. That's very interesting. And so then when the, the backlash started coming, I was not at all surprised. When I realized that we were talking about Formula One, which to my mind, like I, 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 I never think about Formula One being a sport that people in America, North America anyway, uh, really participate in or, you know, know much about. And so I, I wonder how much of this backlash is a generic kind of, you know, misogynist, you know, gasping at, you know, even though I don't give a shit about Formula One, have no idea what Formula One is, you're not going to take my sexy women oh, away from a me. A lot of you it know? is, yeah. In the same way that people who, like, don't live anywhere near a Hooters will defend to the desk the right to, of women to wear, like, shorty shorts and, you know, <laughs> boob tops at Hooters. Um, but because Formula One is such it's, it's like soccer, right? Like, I think of this incredibly, vastly popular sport that doesn't really have a, a hold in the United States, and yet so much of the backlash came from people in the United States, right, who are just regurgitating, as you said, you know, these kind of, you know, um, you know, these false choice feminists, you know, um, dicta like, oh, if, if a woman is truly free, she should be free to, you know, dress sexy and, you know, shake it on a race course yeah. and whatever. And it's like, don't act like you give a shit about women and about the advancement of women. And also don't act as if all of these choices have equal weight or equal stakes, you know, Um, especially, you know, the speed racer. What was her name? Stephanie? Whatever that you were talking about. Jackson. Oh, my God. Am I the worst co-host? Yes. All good. (laughs) Answers on a postcard, right? (laughs) Um, For her, as one of the probably you can count them on two hands, female race car drivers to say this choice is equal you know, knowing the barriers that she has had to overcome to become, you know, a, a race car driver to say, yeah, it's, you know, you can become this or you can become a grid girl. Give me a fucking break. Like, they just seem so disingenuous. Yeah. And, you know, like, so I I don't know this for a fact by any means, but a lot of times women who enter male dominated sports will end up on the cover of Sports Illustrated in fucking bikinis and shit. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the cost, like the 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 women in those positions have a really high cost for entry into those spaces and they can't challenge mm-hmm. the sexist patriarchal norms of those spaces because they had to fight to get into uh, to, into them they're not about mm-hmm. to like challenge it because they won't be accepted and so like um i i think that there's i i am my heart always breaks every time i see people from uh, like different types of oppressed backgrounds speaking up for their oppressors, right? And that mm-hmm. is 100% what this is. It is women who are coming up and, and defending um, defending patriarchy full force because they because that is the power structures and they don't have the access to or the ability to or whatever in order to sort of jo- join feminist thinking around challenging that and making the world better for everyone, not just them and not just their one way. Cause she's the margin of error, which is what you were just mm-hmm. saying, Ebony. Like, yeah, it is. How many female race car drivers on a professional level are there actually? And you can, you can, we will probably get people being like, here are the three, right. <laughs> as, yeah. as the defense. Yeah. And I'm like, you're the margin of error. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing that you were saying that I was thinking about is how a lot of the backlash like you're, uh, a lot of the backlash we get are from misogynist pieces of shit dudes that are like, why don't you care about women in the Middle East? Right? They don't yeah. give a fuck about women. They don't care about progress or advancement. They just want their fucking porn yeah. and their sexualized women in video games. And like, 
you want to talk about women of the Middle East? Cool, let's do it. My family fucking lives there, right? Like, yeah. that shit, and not that that's the, the point, but that shit makes me really mad because they just try to find the thing that is like, an easy they're concern trolling. It's a dis- yeah. They're concern trolling. Yeah, yeah and totally. it's a, derail- it's it a derailment it's a tactic. Derailing. It's like it's it's uh, this notion that as long as things you know in your culture are not the literal worst that they could be, you know, compared to everywhere else in the world, it's not worth fighting to make them better. Which is com- you know, uh, it's completely absurd. Yeah, it really is. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, it's really important that we un- that we can identify and understand choice feminism when it hits us in the face, right? That like, you know, putting, you know, the reason that this woman is getting so much attention right now is because she is, is able to defend the status Mm -hmm. quo and that, you know, it's, it's very easy to use that. And it's, it's, it's used against us in Gamergate too. When like women in games or women, female gamers will be like, fuck Anita and her bullshit. I like big boobs. And I'm like, yeah. Ugh, yeah. And that's then, not the point. And it gives it gives these <laughs> it gives these men who want to who are so invested in maintaining the status quo and maintaining the, you know, the a uh, 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 culture in which uh, the objectification of women is is standard and normalized. It gives them a way to to uh to sort of defend that that position as quote unquote feminist because oh well these you know these women these liberated women are saying like they're they're in favor of it and that you know that these these women just choose to do this and like you want to take that choice away from them it uh, yeah it's it's um it's super frustrating i think this opens up a lot of space to continue the conversation around booth babes and how Mm -hmm. those should not be around how like every year at gdc no matter how that's the game developers conference in san francisco no matter how many times we like feel like we're making progress in games there's some fucking party with some female like dancers or yeah last year it was like swimming in a fucking women in like little uh Little um, synchronized swimming outfits in a fucking ball pit, like it was. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, that was the whole thing that happened last year. Um, so, like, we how do how do we continue this conversation? And you posted a uh, video. Oh yes, about so, this. Well, the video that I posted uh, in our Slack, and I'll post along with this, is that uh, in the UK, uh, just. Now, I think after F1 announced that they were uh, getting rid of, of uh, Grid Girls, there was a gambling uh, convention in, in the UK where the organizing body said, please, you know, don't bring Booth Babes into this. You know, we're trying to move past that. And yet a tremendous number of the exhibitors did still employ B- Booth Babes. in, And they were harassed and groped and fondled as happens yeah. when you have a yeah. fucking bunch of dudes in a room and like half naked women on display display for them right and so um they're they actually like they referenced the formula one announcement when they decided to change their i think that they may be changing their policies around what is allowed in that space as well so it takes it i kudos to formula one i think this is a really great move uh regardless of why they're doing it um and i hope that this has rippling effects into other industries that can you know not put women on display as like objectifying tokens for their presumed male audiences i mean it's certainly been the cry goes up from men everywhere (laughs) what about my boner yeah yeah (laughs) you know it's really weird i don't care about their boners weird it's weird well we're gonna (laughs) anita (laughs) that is we're gonna have to talk about that because I think you should. <laughs> All right. Uh, any last thoughts about this? No, I think that was a did, good talk. Did we did we accomplish our goal? Yeah, of... I think I think we we accomplished our goal of upsetting a, a good number of our listeners. So it's gonna be great. Uh, I think our bit listeners <laughs> no, are gonna be so. super. Down but I think with us. I think it may. Yeah, they may share it. Some people may share it with other people just to sure. Yeah. Well, you know, we're that, that's sadly what we do. instigators. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. All right. Uh, I really like the throwing in little like uh, themes to discuss every now and again, as opposed to pieces of media. Let us know what you think. Um. I enjoy. Yeah, I love that too because it means I don't have to leave my house. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Uh huh. Um. All right. Let's move on to what's your freak out? Dun dun. dun, dun, dun. I don't know if we have a theme song yet, but I just made it up. Um. Hey, Ebony. Hey, Anita. What's your freak out this week? Y'all are going to be blown away and shocked that my freak out this week is 
Once again, a crime drama. That's right, everybody. What? So my, I know, my 10 followers on Twitter, um, I had mentioned several weeks ago, um, back at the dawn of the podcast age, that I was so frustrated by, um, I had just started watching Ripper Street, and I was so frustrated by the way in which, once again, we have a show that is, you know, written on the bodies of women, and yet you know, very little of the agency in the show uh, seemed to come in and through women, right? And and that changes a bit as that show progressed, as you, we went on through the seasons. But nevertheless, I think it's a, a trope that, that bears, you know, discussion um, throughout the genre. So anyways, several people had mentioned that I should try watching Mindhunter mm-hmm. on Netflix. Oh, yeah. Um, I saw that. Yeah, so I, I've gotten through, I think, the first eight episodes. I think I have two more. And I am... I'm fascinated by this show and how much it puts a, a very kind of articulate gloss on what other shows like, I don't want to say down market, but, you know, kind of, um, you know, CBS drama, you know, fill in the blanks, connect the dots crime dramas do, like Criminal Minds, for instance. So Mindhunter is the story about kind of the beginning of um, profiling and, you know, behavioral science or the, the expansion of the behavioral sciences unit at the FBI and the kind of development of these these protocols and, and understanding of what they would term the criminal mind. And what's so frustrating to me, and I don't know if this um, changes any in the last two episodes, but what's so frustrating to me is that very provocative, thoughtful ideas are um, are presented and then kind of dismissed or or are left to lie. So for instance, there's a conversation between the main character Holden Ford and his girlfriend who's a postgrad in sociology. And she she talks about the notion that maybe criminality um, or criminal behavior is a response to a sickness in society. Right. So it's not just that they are that people are doing more horrible things, um, you know, quantitatively or qualitatively, but that as society itself, you know, um, kind of exhibits various forms of sickness in the terms of, you know, oppression, um, you know, capitalism, et cetera, that that criminal behavior is a, a rational response to that. Right. And that sort of gets completely left behind. It doesn't get reckoned with at all. And it becomes this show that is really, you know, enamored with the idea of what are the men like who, you know, who chase these criminals? What are the criminals themselves like? But once again, it is the the women who are presumably like the inciting factor, the 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 rape or the torture or the 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 murder, the brutalization of these women, once again is just kind of background. You know, it's stuff that they they bring to the table in the toolbox, but it's not these women have no voices of their own. It's a, you know, very male show deliberately. And I can hear people saying, well, it's set in the late 70s. Of course, it's going to be a very male show. Right. But it was a choice to create the show in this way. Right. You know, and decide, yeah, we're once again going to tell the story through the lens of how these men feel about it. Um, one of the other things that I found interesting is that the because it's not, you know, a, a 21 episode um, primetime drama, it's not like a monster of the week type thing so that, you know, there's a new serial killer every week. And we show, you know, a team of dedicated, you know, law enforcement officials chasing down the perpetrator and then resolving that in some measure of justice for whatever value of justice you believe in being meted out. You know, it's a very cerebral show. Um, it's very theoretical and abstract. And so there's a way in which we don't even get the the kind of, you know, emotional resolution of seeing people brought to justice in this show, you know? Yeah. So there are people who are already in jail that, you know, we, that the profilers are speaking to. Um, and there's, you know, kind of the occasional case that they that they consult on, but that's not the aim of the show. And so I wonder for people who, you know, like me, watch a lot of these crime dramas, if this show doesn't offer the same kind of, um, you know, like to, it doesn't scratch the same itch because it, it doesn't give us that very visceral kind of like, ah, like you can take a breath. There's this, you know, horror out in the world and it was 
resolved. It was dealt with. The show doesn't give us that. So I'm interested to see what happens in the last two episodes. Obviously, you know, if you've seen the show, you know that there's um, this killer in, I don't know, bumfuck Kansas or whatever that they're about to reckon with. Um, so we'll see what happens. But for the Yo's of all asking me, if I've watched Mindhunter, yes, I'm wrapping that shit up right now. <laughs> I have thoughts. They're not fully formed, but that's my freak out this week. Nice. Uh, we should definitely talk about it because I watched the show. And I think that there's going to be a season two, I think. So yeah, there is. I feel like that would be a good topic for us to dive into on mm-hmm. Feminist Frequency Radio, which you're listening to right now. <laughs> All right, Carol, what is your freak out this week? My freak out this week is the comedy of remarriage. Uh, What's so the comedy of remarriage is, I'm glad you asked, it's a subgenre <laughs> of American comedy films of the 1930s and 40s. At the time, the production code also known as the Hayes Code, banned any explicit references to or attempts to justify adultery and illicit sex. So the comedy of remarriage enabled filmmakers to evade this provision of the code because the protagonist divorced flirted with strangers without risking the wrath of censorship, and then got back together. So in the past week, I've watched two classic comedies of remarriage, both with Cary Grant in the leading male role. The Philadelphia Story, which has Cary Grant, Catherine Mm -hmm. Hepburn, and Jimmy Stewart, and His Girl Friday, um, which has Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. And uh, so just, like... I wanted to watch films that were smart and snappy and funny. And, like, the dialogue in these films, you know, they they really do not write films like this anymore. They're so smart and so sharp and so witty. It's sort of like, like, um, um, uh, West Wing guy, what's his name? Um, Aaron Sorkin. Sorkin, but, like... Good, better, and yeah, like way better, and like amped up, and you just have these situations where you know characters are, are just so snappily and funnily interacting with each other. It's it's delightful to watch, and yet the gender dynamics like are super interesting. So uh, let me, you know, for instance, in His Girl Friday, real quick, it's a newspaper uh, film. It's a newspaper comedy. Uh, Carrie Grant's the editor of this paper. Rosalind Russell is um, Hildy Johnson, this like ace reporter, totally brilliant writer. So you have a you know representation of a woman who's sharp, smart, witty, like the best reporter on the paper. Um, but so she and Cary Grant, the editor, used uh, used to be married. They divorced. She comes back with this guy she's going to marry and just go live in uh, in Albany with and not be a reporter. She's going to like leave the newspaper game. But. Cary Grant knows that, like, her soul, her heart, her fire, her passion is all, like, she is in her blood a newspaper reporter. And so he does all this scheming and everything to put her in a situation where she realizes that that she is at heart a newspaper reporter. And in the end... um, through that realization, also realizes she doesn't want to just go to Albany and be this guy's wife and be a mother to kids. She wants to stay with Cary Grant and be in the newspaper game, and they they go off to get remarried. And it's, like, super interesting because, on one hand, it's you have this portrayal of a woman, and the Catherine Hepburn in the Philadelphia story is somewhat similar, of, like, a woman who's strong and independent and, and, and uh, you know, just a really interesting, complex woman, and yet the the kind of the plot and the the machinations of the the comedy of remarriage sort of dictate that the way they discover who they really are and who they want to be and what they want from life is through a man kind of like manipulating and scheming and putting and doing all this stuff that's really unethical to make them realize like oh mm-hmm. i am like a newspaper reporter at heart like i do want to this is who i am this is what i want to be so um I mean, I really enjoyed watching these films. Like, they, again, they are just pure cinematic pleasure. So well written, so sharp, so smart. But just, like, also, like, really just there's a lot to dig into and unpack there around the gender dynamics. Um, so, anyway, um, you know, if you're, if you're like, a movie buff like me and you've never seen these films, I highly recommend watching them. They're, they're really fun, but also, you know, kind of messed up. <laughs> <laughs> And that I can't is wait for a Caro oh, Cinema yeah. Corner, you know, when uh, when you'd have the podcast where you just talk movies. I can't wait for this. 
<laughs> all right, my uh, freak out. So first of all, I want to thank everyone who's tweeted at me about The Expanse. Um, it was very divided in terms of whether I should continue watching or not continue watching. Um, I have now started watching season two. I've been live tweeting it. So if you want to see my responses, feel free to check out my Twitter at Anita Sarkeesian. Um, and I will have my season two freak out when I'm done watching that. All right. Uh, I would like to talk about expiration dates of shows. Um, And I'm going to use Grace and Frankie as the lens for this. So I am a strong proponent of shows having a vision of how it starts and how it ends and then building in the amount of seasons needed to accomplish that goal as opposed to just like – Let's try to stay on the air forever so that we have jobs and <laughs> whatever, right? Like for all the reasons that that could happen and just get continually renewed and for over and over. I love Grace and Frankie. I fucking love the show. Like I get so excited when a new season comes out. It is a Netflix show um, that stars Jane Fonda, Lily Tomlin, Martin Sheen, and Martin Sheen, sorry, and Sam Waterston and like all star cast. Right. And the thing about Grace and Frankie that I think is so spectacular is that it actually like we very rarely see the lives and and concerns and experiences of older people like in their 70s ever like that is not you are like the washed out grandmother or you're like, you know, you're the like the magical person that we come to to get information from or guide us on our path, but you're never the star of the show. And so I think just that premise alone is spectacular. And the concept of the show is that um, they're, the, they're, these are couples, uh, straight couples, and it turns out that the men have been having an affair together forever, and they finally tell their wives and get divorces, and like their whole lives get turned upside down. Um. So I highly, highly recommend checking out the first few seasons of this show because I think it's very, very good and there's lots of wonderful stuff there. I've been watching the fourth season, which just came out, and I kind of feel like the show is done. Um, And it's disappointing because I love it so much. And I think that some of the themes that they're talking about in this particular season are great in terms of like, you know, like what happens when your friends start having like have to go into a home because they're having memory loss or like, what does it mean to date and have relationships at 70? Like um, coming to terms with like nearing death, for example, Um, there's a cute moment in this where um, Martin Sheen and Sam Watterson's characters, like they're really excited about being gay. (laughs) And and so, so like they're learning about activism and how like, you know, homophobia is still very real and so like there's all these moments where they keep getting arrested for like being activists it's really cute but then there are things that they don't know about like quote unquote being gay and like what it means in that community so like there's a whole conversation right now about like open relationships and one of the characters is like, I'm Catholic. I would never do that. But everyone else that are that are gay men in this world are like, yeah, I might want to consider it. So I think <laughs> I think that there's some really lovely stuff. I think the end of the season is better than the beginning of the season. But I do um, like not to throw the show under the bus because I kind of just wanted to talk about it. But I was a little bit disappointed because the first half of the season four just felt like, OK, I think you're done. Like, I think you're done telling this story. Why don't you tell a different story? Um, why don't you move on to to something else entirely? And so that's it. Mm-hmm. I'm I I would encourage creators to have a beginning and end point of their stories so that like it stays with us in this really meaningful way, um, as opposed to being like, oh yeah, don't like Gilmore Girls. Everyone likes the first two seasons of Gilmore Girls, and the rest of it no, is they fucking don't. garbage. I know that's true, but <laughs> no, <they don't. laughs> but the people who do like it. So, anyways, all right. Um, I will stop. Speaking of that kind of rapid fire patter, um, Gilmore Girls, I was like, that, oh my God, listening to that show made me want to punch babies. I love movies (laughs) from the 30s, you know, and it worked in those movies, but Gilmore Girls, nope. All right, y'all, that is our show. You can catch us back here every single Wednesday. Uh, We could not make this podcast happen without our generous backers on Drip. Drip is Kickstarter's new subscription-based crowdfunding platform. Help us keep bringing this podcast to you every week by joining the FemFreak community. We've got some great rewards for you, so pitch in now at d.rip slash FemFreak. 
If you're enjoying the show, we have a small favor to ask you. You know what it is. Please leave us a review uh, on iTunes or anywhere that you are uh, listening to this podcast because it really, really helps us spread the word about the show. And, you know, tell all of your friends, too, who might just be sitting on the couch all day Saturday and Sunday watching TV shows alone. Uh, that was I, I feel sorry. attacked. <laughs> That's what I did. Yeah. <laughs> um, I couldn't think of a better location. Sorry, y'all. Um, you can check out all of our work and our other podcasts at feministfrequency.com. We just released the last episode of our Star Trek Discovery podcast for the season, and we released a very special bonus. So if you care about podca- if you care about Star Trek, please check out our special Sciency YNC bonus episode. Um, we are preparing all new exciting podcasts, so be sure to follow us on Twitter at FemFreak to stay up to date on all of the news. And as always, we want to hear from you. Carolyn, mm-hmm. where on Twitter might people send you beautiful messages of adoring fan mail? Please send those to me at Carolyn Michelle. Ebony, who do you want to send reached- things to this week? <laughs> to my address. So that's at... What are you doing, Arm? <laughs> Instagram. Alternatively, uh, send all your wild conspiracy theories about Star Trek to at Ebony Astor. I am at Anita Sarkeesian. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. And we'll see you all next week. Bye. <laughs> Nobody's going to say bye. Oh, bye. Later. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>